So IXL Learning is a multi-subject online program for kids, and it's used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. 14 million students use it. And if you have kids who are trying to get ahead or if they're struggling with certain subjects or studying for a test that's coming up, IXL is this personalized learning tool that you can use to help kids learn what they need to learn faster. And they have programs K through 12, so there's something for every level. And some of my nieces and nephews have been homeschooled, and so my family has used tools like this to supplement curriculum or to brush up or to sharpen skills. IXL Learning has won tons of awards, and so many students have benefited from it. So make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And Ologies listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash Ologies. So visit IXL.com slash Ologies to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Hi, it's your eccentric but quiet neighbor, Allie Ward. Hey, how did you get here? Why Why don't we have flippers? Is a fly my cousin? What is life? Welcome to Evolutionary Biology. Now, this is a special episode because, frankly, I thought it was lost to extinction. I thought it was plum deed. I recorded it with an evolutionary biologist who works at the same lab at Occidental College as our ornithologist from a few episodes back. So late last year, before I had better microphones or uh, necessarily a good interview rhythm down, I visited with this evolutionary biologist. And before the tape rolled, we talked about birds and our upcoming holiday plans. And then we sat down to chat about natural selection. And then I lost the file for like a lot of months. And I found it on a drive recently. And oh, Oh, so exciting. It was like encountering a dodo bird in a P.F. Chang's parking lot. I was ecstatic. Another thing that's exciting, your support. Thank you to everyone funding the production of this podcast on patreon.com slash ologies. It's run completely independently and your pledges for as little as 25 cents an episode totally keep it going. I'm able to pay an amazing editor. What's up, Steven? To cut it all up and put it back together. You can also support just by getting some sweet, sweet Ologies merch. Get a shirt for 20 bucks on ologiesmerch.com in whatever color you want. Or you can support for free. No money. Just by telling a friend. Or you can tweet about it or subscribe on iTunes. Are you subscribed? Go check. Sometimes Apple just unsubscribes me from things. Um, and it also helps so much to rate or to leave a review for the podcast. This week, Ologies was number 20 in science podcasts on iTunes. Sure, we had some ghost podcasts to beat, but number 20 is thrilling as hell for an indie podcast. So I creep all your reviews. I read them all. I read every single one of them. This one was really kind. Big Zozu says, You are the podcast I'd want to buy a drink for in a classy bar. The music is low. The mood is right. I buy you the top shelf beverage of your choice. And then you delight me with the most interesting facts my brain could possibly absorb with gin. Thanks for rocking my pod socks on the rocks. 
Well, you're welcome, Big Zazu. I'm trying to think what drink I would order top shelf at a classy bar. And I'm like, do they have wine spritzers? No, I don't know. Okay, evolutionary biology. In this episode, you're going to pick up some sweet-ass definitions like taxonomy. What is it? Epigenetics, genetic drift, phylogeny. What is all this mouth salad? And you'll learn about some crowdsourced cancer fixers, some super erotic whales, some finch gossip, relationship goals, and about how Charles Darwin had a wonderful but super shitty but also wonderful life that involved probably a lot of bad toilet experiences and a lust for a family member. Who was it? So please enjoy this chat that essentially boils down to our mutations are our strengths and adaptability is a virtue. Meet evolutionary biologist John McCormick. No, that that works. So are you an, by trade, are you an evolutionary biologist? Yes. Um, that's kind of where a couple different hats, I'd say. Evolutionary biologist is probably the, the broadest one. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I consider myself an ornithologist as well. I should hope so, as the curator of a bird collection. So do you, would you say that you have like genus and species on the brain a lot? Oh yeah, 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 all the time. Because that's a lot of what we do here with a with a specimen collection. Just you know, naming the basic units of biodiversity. Do you remember as a kid in in class learning the like what was it King Philip? What is the <laughs> yeah? What is and, it again? <laughs> well, I can't remember it. <laughs> Let's talk taxonomy, which is how science organizes things. So you may have learned that plants and fungi and animals are classified into domain, kingdom, class, order, family, genus, and species. And you're like, wow, Allie, that is amazing. How did you memorize that? You were a genius. And I know that's what you're thinking. Now, the mnemonic device is clutch here. I never remembered the mnemonic device for this. I remember we learned one. I think it was like Dear King Philip came over from Germany, comma, so, which is weird. Who ends, what's the so about? What's the rest of the story? Anyway, I never remembered it. Dear King Philip came over for grape soda is another way to remember kingdom, class, order, family, genus, species. Another alternative you could use is Dickish Ken poured coffee on Fran's good shirt. Fuck off, Ken. Or, dang, kinky people come over for group sex, which is apparently what some biology teachers use. They're like, they know marketing. They know how to get your attention. Don't kick people coming from Goldman Sachs is another alternative, depending on how your thoughts about it. So calling an organism or a specimen by its genus and species, it's kind of like saying your last name first, but it's what we call Linnean taxonomy. Even though Swedish ecologist Carl Linnaeus, he didn't really invent it. Someone else did. It was kind of already established. So John wasn't busy learning Carl Linnaeus mnemonic memory devices in high school, but he was down with a different Carl, Carl Sagan, who, despite being an astronomer and a cosmologist, he wrote about evolution. We sometimes represent evolution as the ever-branching ramifications of some original trunk each branch pruned and clipped by natural selection. 
Sagan has an eight-minute animated video that essentially details the journey from a single-celled animal to a polyp on the seafloor to humans, jawless, fishy ancestors to an amphibian to a shrew to primates to apes branching off into bipedal creatures with big brains that poke stuff and will eventually invent things like game shows and salad spinners. Human beings. I added that last part because I'm writing this in bed. Honestly, evolution and humanity are kind of freaking me out. It's like nothing matters, but everything matters. Everything changes. We're all mutable. How did I get here? Think of all the people that had to mate in order for me to be alive right now. What have I even done with my day? Anyway, what is it about the Linnaean system of taxonomy that you dig? Well, I've always been an organizer and a list maker. And so it always appealed to me, you know, when I found out about it, it was uh, uh, a lot of taxonomy is is lists and organization. I like that. In your regular life, your day to day life, are you as organized as you are as a scientist? Or is your house just like a disaster and you're not sure, <laughs> like, you don't have a Christmas list isn't ready? Like, <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, that's kind of the plight, I think, of uh the academic is um, to be extremely busy and wearing a lot of hats. And um, I, I'm certainly not as organized as I would like to be. Um, <laughs> is this a difficult admission for you? Are you like, oh, a man. little bit? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I guess I'm still, I'd say, fairly organized about my things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, in terms of just general life and scheduling and things like that, it's. Uh, a bit of the disaster you might expect from an <laughs> academic. And so tell me a little bit about when you first kind of grasped the concept of evolution. Like, when did you start to realize, okay, mutations are responsible for a lot of these different uh, like appearances and behavior and capabilities of animals? Like, When did you start to get excited about evolution? I think it was when I was doing some of those early readings in high school. Um, you know, I know there are other people that have, have spoken at more length about evolution than Carl Sagan, who was mm -hmm. principal, principally an astronomer or cosmologist. And, um, but it was some of his books um, that, that delved more into evolutionary ideas that got me into it. From there, John studied at University of Arizona, and he took an evolution class by Dr. Nancy Moran, who... I looked her up. She is a badass and a MacArthur Fellow. She researches the gut biome of aphids. And it was really there for the first time that I learned just kind of the, the basic framework of evolution and its processes, mutation, natural selection, and then some things I'd never heard of like genetic drift, which is the sort of random way that evolution can can take gene frequencies and populations and that that there were whole aspects of it I hadn't heard of. Um, that was pretty exciting, too. What's an example of genetic drift? How do you describe that at a cocktail party to someone who's <laughs> half a glass of Chardonnay in? <laughs> well, I guess I'd point to the M&M bowl and I'd say... Uh, okay, so see that M&M bowl. Genetic drift is when you take... A small handful of M&Ms and you end up with three green ones <laughs> instead of the full, you know, rainbow of colors, mm -hmm. that's genetic drift. And that's, that's what can happen in, in populations. Sometimes generation to generation, you don't always get a, a random draw of the mm -hmm. genes that are out there. Sometimes you get a very non-representative draw and that can have a big influence on evolution. And I, uh, 
I kind of like the idea that there's that sort of chance element in there too, as well as kind of the more what we call deterministic or kind of the more predictable outcomes of natural selection. Are there any movies or TV shows about evolution that you either really like or that really annoy you? (laughs) Are you like, that's not evolution? That's a great question. You know, Gattaca comes to mind as one that's actually a fairly interesting and informed movie mm-hmm. with evolutionary ideas. It's been long enough since I've seen it that I, I, I can't really tell you that much. But, uh, you know, the ideas of what can happen with genetic engineering and kind of our more um, consumer-based eugenics that we have now are kind of, you know, enhancing our genes um, because we want to mm-hmm. and some of the outcomes. Pretty interesting. How do you, I did talk about Gattaca in the paleontology episode okay, yeah. and about how I always really respected that um, they only used uh, ATGC, a, no, ATGC, whatever, um, to make the name Gattaca. <laughs> right. Like, that's pretty dope. How do you feel about CRISPR and gene editing? Um, on the one hand, it's incredibly exciting. I mm-hmm. mean, I think people tend to focus in on the aspects of it that involve genetic engineering in humans. Mm-hmm. And that is one avenue that obviously um, a lot of caution needs to be taken. Uh, but uh, there's so many other applications of CRISPR technology um, just to the study of evolution mm-hmm. that it's really quite exciting. I mean, the the possibilities for experimental evolution are are vast. And that's great. So what is it about birds that make them prime for studying evolutionary biology? Why birds? Well, people freaking love birds. There have been a lot of them observed, described, collected. So there's a good base of knowledge there, as opposed to like slime molds, which nobody goes to hunt down and marvel at. Probably a few people do, and I hope they're friends with each other. But anyway, birds. And the starting place for a lot of that is what is the evolutionary tree of relationships? Just knowing who is related to whom is an important starting point. And if you don't have that, then that's kind of your first step. And so with birds, they've been worked out well enough that that first step is kind of already completed. And you can sort of jump to answering some of the the, the broader questions. Because you know the characters in the story. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right. Let's take a quick Darwin detour. Who was he? Why should you care? I'm going to run this down as quick as I can for you. So Charles Robert Darwin was born in England in the early 1800s. His father was a super rich doctor and Darwin tried to go to medical school, but he hated it. He hated it. He was also the grandson of prominent abolitionists, which is cool. And he loved nature and geology. He loved collecting beetles. God, he loved it. His dad was like, kiddo, you're a loser. And Darwin was like, dad, can I just go on this boat, the HMS Beagle, and travel the world and I'll write about it? Will you please finance it? Rich dad. And his dad reluctantly agreed. But at one point said to him, you ready for this? Quote, you care for nothing but shooting, dogs, and rat catching, and you will be a disgrace to yourself and all your family. But, haha, joke's on you, Pop. He wasn't a disgrace to his whole family because Charles Darwin married his cousin. Oh, yeah. 
Apparently, when he was considering taking on a cousin bride, he was so accustomed to filling notebooks with thoughts on various specimens and animal breeding and stuff that he scrawled out a page with one column headed Mary and another not Mary. Now, advantages of marriage included, quote, constant companion and friend in old age, better than a dog anyhow. Well, I don't know if I agree with that. Cons were less money for books and terrible loss of time. So constant companion, friend in old age, better than a dog or less money for books and a terrible loss of time. Mm. He decided to make this family affair into a family affair, and he had several babies with his cousin. Back to the Beagle. Charles Darwin did a bunch of writing, kind of like travel blogging, but with more dysentery and smeared ink. And his diaries were made into a popular book, The Voyage of the Beagle. It was on these travels that he started to come up with a theory of evolution, but it took him years of tinkering and rewriting an illness, which may or may not have been Chagas disease from a parasite on something called an assassin bug. And he was also a little thwarted by, I think, procrastination. But finally, he published his On the Origin of Species, his book in 1859, It was a huge deal. He also kind of published it alongside a contemporary of his, Alfred Wallace. Now, Alfred Wallace, never heard of him before I started researching this episode. He was working on a super similar theory, but he had a harder and more impoverished life than Darwin. Like, Wallace's ship full of work sank to the ocean floor. He was adrift at sea on a lifeboat. Alfred Wallace, who no one ended up caring about, but back to Darwin on the Beagle trip. So Darwin stopped for supplies in the Galapagos Islands off the coast of South America, and he noticed that different animals on different islands had slightly different features. For example, all those finches. Why do they have different beak shapes? They got crushing bills. They got probing bills. They got grasping bills. What are these bills? Ah, they must be adapted for different food sources on each little tiny island climate. So he theorized. Were you really inspired by Darwin's finches? Was that a big deal for you at some point where the the kind of evolution, natural selection and birds and specialization of beaks and colors? Did that did that inspire you a lot? Absolutely, because, you know, it's just it's such a great story because it's kind of the complete package in terms of evolution happening on a short time scale mm-hmm. that humans can observe. It's happening in sort of a contained environment that you can wrap your mind around, right? This island where Peter and Rosemary Grant studied the finches, you know, you could walk around it in an hour. I did not know who Peter or Rosemary Grant were. Oh, man. Oh, God. Oh, man. Okay. If you've been in mourning since Brangelina split, have I got a couple for you? Boy, howdy. What sexy motherfuckers. Now, born in 1936, this British evolutionary biologist couple went to Daphne Major, a Galapagos island, and they've been studying the finches there since 1973. They live together on a remote island half the year and are Princeton professors the other half. Who are these sensual lovers? Well, they met when Rosemary was lecturing in embryology and genetics. Peter was still a zoology grad student and her teaching assistant, but they've been married like 
56 years, and they've been capturing, tagging, tracking these finches in the Galapagos, and they've been able to show that natural selection can be observed within even a couple of years. Darwin thought this took eons before you could see natural selection. They're like, nope, check this out. We figured it out. It can happen super quick. And yes, Rosemary and Peter Grant did produce offspring, two daughters, one of whom I just found and followed on Instagram. I think she studies psychology and is into making cakes. Have I mentioned I'm creepy? I just, I just want to be friends. I just want to be friends. Okay, so back to the finches. And you, there were maybe a, you know, a thousand or a couple thousand finches on the island. They could catch them all and have them color banded. And so it's kind of one of those, um, you know, it's almost evolution in a test tube, but mm-hmm. the test tube is nature. <laughs> And um, then the other aspect about it is just kind of, you know, the romance of field work in a faraway island. There's a great book called The Beak of the Finch that sort of follows the grants and their graduate students on this um, this decade-long chase for uncovering evolution. And that was really inspiring for me because it kind of, it dispelled some of the, some of the myths of field work. Like, you know, it's all fun and hanging out on the beach. <laughs> it's a lot of hard work. I imagine less margaritas, <laughs> That's right. more like bugs in your clothes. That's and- right. And scorching hot sun. Um, but that story, I just think it's so inspirational and it, it's so easy to grasp. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's why I make it a point. Just last week, I, I have an entire class, two classes, in fact, where I I walk through the the Darwin's Finch example with my students in my evolution class and kind of give them the whole story. How do you feel about people going to the Galapagos as tourists? Does it piss you off? <laughs> no, huh? it, it doesn't, you know, and I, I've actually been there myself as a tourist. Any situation where people are out there enjoying nature and to see people making such a long trip at such expense to see nature firsthand and to see the work of evolution that makes me happy now sure once you get there there's always cases that you can look at that make you grumpy you know the person with the camera right in the face of the you know the seal Mm -hmm. but i try to take a broader picture and 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 think of how great it is that people can get so excited about biodiversity Mm -hmm. i once went to an island in thailand and I saw a tourist uh, tipping back a Pepsi into the mouth of a monkey. <laughs> and I had a hard time with that. <laughs> I was like, we shouldn't, we should all go home. <laughs> it's like, this shouldn't be happening. There's, there's plenty of ways that you can observe humans interacting stupidly with nature. And right. now with social media, you know, we could just do nothing but watch humans interacting stupidly with nature and so i mean it's a concern right it's 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 a problem and people need to be educated but again i think taking a slightly more optimistic sort of broad viewpoint i'm glad that people are jazzed up about nature right do you ever look at yourself or people in your life and say way to go j man i am the result of a bunch of evolution (laughs) it is a pretty marvelous thing when you think about it i tend to not focus so much on humans as the pinnacle of evolution ouch yes okay reminder humans 
not the pinnacle of evolution, you have a point. And I like to look at other situations and marvel over the, the millions of years of evolution that produce some remarkable radiation of birds, uh, for example. But um, when you stop to think about it, everything that's alive today is the survivor of essentially 3.7 billion years of evolution. All those species, millions and millions of species that are crawling around on this very thin crust of the earth uh, are the products of that 3.7 billion years of evolution. And it's, it's a remarkable thing, you know? And in each one, even from a bacteria to a human, has evolved just as much through just as much time. I think it's easy to think about certain species alive today as being more evolved than others because maybe they um, have a few more adaptations or they look more complex. But at the end of the day, that bacterium and that human were all the products of 3.7 billion years of evolution. Even if you do nothing but play World of Warcraft and eat from a barrel of cheese puffs, you're still a winner, <laughs> right? You sure. you are the, the product of winners. <laughs> you got here because your ancestors won the evolutionary game. Now, what you choose to do <laughs> with all that winning is another question. That's a very diplomatic way of saying, don't just play World of Warcraft and eat cheese puffs. <laughs> very diplomatic. <laughs> I'm not into telling people what to do with their lives. But uh, at the end of the day, evolution is, a, is about um, fitness and is about offspring. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, eating Cheetos in your basement is maybe not going to get you <laughs> to the finish line there. You never know. You never know, you though. You never know. You never know. Okay, disclaimer, I know nothing about World of Warcraft or how good of a life you can have playing video games in a basement, but I decided to look into it, and this did cause me to stumble upon a cracked article about farming gold, which seems like some sort of earned token you can sell to another player. One guy does this 72 hours a week and makes about $25,000 a year, and he also lives off pizza and monster energy drinks, so it's possible it is possible you can make a living playing World of Warcraft, and then you can put Gold Farmer on your business card. Oh, what's on John's business card? Is it ornithologist or evolutionary biologist? I think I tend to describe myself as an evolutionary biologist who studies birds. Um, but, you know, I'm an ornithologist as well. Own it. I, yeah. Work maybe, it. Maybe Come I on. should own it. Maybe I should own it. <laughs> <laughs> and besides, you can be both. I'm sitting I'm sitting next to your uh, business card, and it doesn't even say an ologist of any kind. It just says director and curator of the Moore Lab of Zoology. You gotta throw some, you gotta throw some titles on these. Well, Allie, I gotta bring you in for PR, I Come guess. on. Yeah. Let me be your life coach. <laughs> like zoologist, ornithologist, evolutionary biologist. Come on. Um, uh, what is... Let's, let's debunk some flimflam. Okay. What is... A myth about evolution that you feel like people hang on to other than just creationism right so I think one of the great myths is embodied in that classic symbol of evolution where you see sort of the chimpanzee evolving through something that looks like a Neanderthal mm. into modern humans 
this linear illustration of primates up to modern humans is called the Road to Homo Sapiens. It's also been called the March of Progress, and it was published in 1965 in a Time Life Science volume. You've totally seen it. It has silhouettes of gibbons and then chimps and apes all kind of marching in a line up until you get to these like tanned muscular Neanderthals. And it's like it's such a good psychological test in trying to figure out how far back in species it becomes inappropriate to want to smash. Like some of them look like shaggy haired rock climber boys with good butts who just need a shower. And you're like, shoot, these are cave people. Check yourself, girl. Okay, so there are so many parodies of this illustration. I'm sure that if you see it, you almost expect to see the devolving into Homer Simpson or a Martian or something. Now, rather than this linear evolution, evolution looks more like a tree, as they call it, a tree of life, where one thicker branch represents a common ancestor and then new species kind of branch outward. So that's called phylogeny. And Darwin sketched it in one of his Beagle era notebooks with the words, I think, scrawled above it, which I think is super adorable and very humble. I have a friend who has this tattoo of this Darwinian tree of life sketch. And I hope Darwin's stodgy father would be proud. Okay, back to that road to Homo sapiens linear evolution illustration and how that's not really how things happen. Although it's even used by people who are pro-evolution, I think it kind of leaves people with a a misimpression of how evolution actually operates. Um, Because, you know, chimpanzees and humans are each other's closest relatives. And, you know, humans didn't evolve from chimpanzees we evolved from some common ancestor that we shared mm-hmm. with chimpanzees and so that that depiction of evolution is kind of um you know following a linear pattern right uh it it, it belies the true branching history of evolution that's underneath and uh one of the most common questions you get and you know just recently on Twitter, um, Tim Allen, of all people, was going to weigh in on evolution uh, and ask the question you get a lot, which is, if humans evolve from apes, why are there still apes? Right. And again, it, it's it's embodied in the in that symbol that that's not true. We didn't evolve from apes. Uh, gorillas and chimpanzees and us all evolved from a common ancestor that was neither an ape, nor a chimpanzee, nor a human, but something else. Maybe that was just a personal branding question for him, because he did make make his mark on the world by grunting, right? I feel like he grunted a lot. He's like, shoot, maybe I had to rethink this. <laughs> well, yeah. see, he's got good PR people, maybe. He does. I saw that, and I was like, Ugh, Tim Allen, sit down. Just, just go away. Um, I do have some questions from listeners, yeah. and I don't know if they're going to be easy questions. You can... You can say pass on any of these. But before we take 
questions from you, our beloved listeners. We're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to aliward.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money, but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by Ologists who work in those fields and And this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening and thanks sponsors. Ologies with Allie Ward is sponsored by Squarespace. And Squarespace has been part of my daily life for the last seven and a half years. Ologies might not exist without Squarespace. I had to make a website for this and I was so intimidated. It took me over a year. And then one night I was like, you know what? I've heard about Squarespace. I'm going to try it. And now look at us. If you don't think you need a website, guess what? You probably do. Especially if you're an academic, have someplace where all your papers are. People can contact you. Anyway, they have so many tools for entrepreneurs. They have Fluid Engine, which is this kind of next generation website design system. It's from Squarespace. It's drag and drop technology. You can use it on desktop or mobile. They also have an asset library so you can manage all of your files from this central hub and then you can use them across the whole platform. They have professional website templates. They have designs for every category, every use case, no matter what you need a website for. Get a website, start your business. Look, it worked for me. Ding. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And then when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash ologies to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You could do it. You could do it. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you want to do. I know time is the most valuable thing that you have. Boy, let me tell you, I had to learn this over time. You know what helped? Therapy. Therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more. And where I learned that was better help because yes, I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online. It's convenient. It's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire. They match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible. And I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat. You can text. You can do video calls. You can do phone calls. For some reason, you are not vibing with your therapist. You can switch at any time. No extra cost. No drama. So let me tell you. Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ologies. It's about time. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply kiwico you know i love kiwico because making stuff and learning while you do it the best way and kiwico is great they deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages they have these hands-on projects and activities and each month kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art and i love that all the things you need are in there so you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners you're not going to run out of glue or something and kiwico tests these crates with professionals and with kids 
to make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids. And I also like that there's no commitment, so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at KiwiCo.com with the promo code OLOGIES. So that's 50% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O.com, promo code OLOGIES. They're going to love it. Okay, your questions. Dr. Tegan Wall wants to know, what are the best ways to differentiate bad post-hoc EvoBio claims from actual science. Example, bananas evolved to be eaten by humans because we have hands. Things like that. A lot of the examples of evolution you see written about in the popular press kind of fall into this trap of portraying evolution as though it responds to needs. Mm. And sometimes this is just loose shorthand. I have heard that people get like a a science teacher tell me she's she hates when uh when she hears like, oh, this species evolved because it wanted this or, you know what I mean? Like a evolved, yeah, out of need instead of out of kind of chance, but. Exactly. Yeah. And so, right. The recent example was um, birds that have evolved to, um, to feed off of um, bird feeders in Great Britain. So bills, uh, birds have evolved longer bills to feed off of bird feeders was kind of the headline mm-hmm. that you saw. And it kind of gives this impression of evolution that it responds to needs. The birds right. sort of thought to themselves, look, I, you know, I really need a longer bill here. And so let's, <laughs> let's go for that. You know, let's try to reach that pinnacle mm-hmm. of evolution. Uh, and it, again, underlying that is the true evolutionary mechanism, which is um, differential survival and reproduction. Differential survival and reproduction, just being fancy talk for little variances in genes, mean good mutations, which help a plant or a bird or a snail thrive and mate in its particular environment. Boom. Natural selection. You know, the way I would say it would be much longer. Um, it would be something on the, along the lines of birds with longer bills were able to feed more effectively from bird feeders and thereby produce more offspring, which led the population as a whole to have longer bills. Now, you can understand why a headline writer isn't going to go there. Right. Why I don't have a job as a headline writer. (laughs) (laughs) Breaking news. Birds with longer bills were able to feed more effectively from bird feeders and thereby produce more offspring, which led to the population as a whole having longer bills. It's it's very wordy. But I think there are ways to um, to depict the evolutionary process um, in headlines in kind of a more effective way. Right, right. A little bit less sensationalist. How do you feel about Lamarckian uh, theory of acquired genetics that people maybe still kind of believe in it? French biologist Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, by the way, had a theory of acquired genetics such that offspring would take on the characteristics their parents adopted in their life. Like... Okay, if a giraffe slowly stretched its neck ever further to try to get leaves, then its babies would have a little bit longer necks 
depending on the giraffe's effort. Or if your mom was a competitive bodybuilder and you were just destined to be ripped. Turns out, not so much. Lamarckian genetics predated Darwin's theory of evolution. And once Darwin came on the scene, people were like, uh, yeah, bye Lamarck. Au revoir. No, no. So how does John feel about Lamarck? And also, did, did Lamarck get a... Did he get the shaft or do you, are you like, <laughs> he should have never uh, been kind of known? Oh, I'm a big believer that Lamarck, you know, has been overly vilified. I mean, the fact was Lamarck's theory was the first kind of full and coherent theory of evolution that evolved, involved a mechanism um, for how it occurred. No one had really done that before. Huh. And so even if he was wrong, he got people talking and he got people thinking and he got people like Darwin thinking about why he was wrong. And that moved things forward. So, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Lamarck. He did a lot of things right. Um, he just happened to be wrong about how traits um, changed and how they were passed down through the generations. What about epigenetics? How do you feel about it? Right. So <laughs> this is so funny. And my, my students will laugh when they hear that question, because just yesterday I went on a, a long unannounced rant about <laughs> epigenetics. Um, you know, it, it's the, the term is misapplied these days quite a lot, especially mm -hmm. in media accounts. Uh, I understand it's a buzzword. Super quick primer. So epigenetics is kind of a buzzword these days. Essentially, it refers to when your gene expressions change, not the DNA or the genetic code itself, but just the expression of it changes. So John says it really applies to specific cases where DNA can be silenced by the addition of molecules to something called the histones. Histones are proteins that make up the structure that DNA gets wound around. So those molecules can attach and effectively silence certain, silence certain parts of the genome. And in some cases, it seems that those silencers can be passed down from parents to offspring. And in some cases also, that silencing can happen during the lifetime of an organism in response to its environment. So it's at least theoretically possible, and I think it's been shown in maybe just a few cases where these, this sort of silencing occurs in the lifetime of an organism and then gets passed down to its offspring. Mm -hmm. So it is possible that it's a contributor to evolution. And in a sense, it's a bit Lamarckian, right? So mm -hmm. Lamarck's theory of acquired characteristics was the idea that traits picked up during your lifetime you can pass down. And so epigenetics in the narrow sense sort of adheres to that idea. How often has that actually contributed to evolution? Mm -hmm. And also, is this not something that at the end of the day is found in the genetic code? So the silencing and turning off and on of these genes um, at the histone level might itself be encoded in the genes. Got it. So your genes might already be saying like, hey, turn these things on, turn those guys off. Like they might already be on top of it, might be part of the code. So, um, but then there's all sorts of ways that people use epigenetics that um, was already folded into what we know about Darwinian evolution. So Darwin was already hip to it. 
I don't know if Darwin was hip to it, right. but certainly those people that um, uh, in the modern synthesis, you know, Darwin uh, didn't know the genetic mechanism of how heredity happened. But after Mendel um, showed us the, the genetic component, and then after that was sort of incorporated with Darwin's views of natural selection. More listener questions. You ready? Yeah. Okay. I hope these aren't too insane. Um, Chasing Katie wants to know, I don't even understand this question. I'm just going to read it. If he works in sequence alignment, I want to know what is the most significant discovery arisen from resolving anomalies in human DNA? I just reread this question again, like 17 times. I still don't understand it. I looked it up and it seems to involve finding matching sequences within DNA to point to one common ancestor. Does that make sense? I think the question is is about how we we take multiple sequences from multiple individuals and know that we're looking at the same piece of DNA mm. across individuals. Um, so that's sequence alignment is a very important part of building a tree of evolutionary relationships from DNA data. A lot of times you get pieces of DNA from very different species and Evolution has taken them in such different directions that you almost don't recognize that those pieces of DNA are related to one another. Ah. And so it becomes quite challenging to sort of align it all together and know you're looking at sort of the same base or the same chunk of DNA or the same gene across different species. Um, we have had new computational tools come online that have really vastly improved our ability to do that by eye. Mm -hmm. It used to be you got these chunks of DNA and then you would just look at them on a computer and sort of move them around Oof. by eye. Oh. And um, That sounds terrible. It sounds terrible, but actually um, it's a pretty darn good way of doing it as it turns out. We've had new computational tools that come online that have allowed us to sort of align DNA across whole genomes in a way that it would take years to do by eye. Mm -hmm. So you can get most of it close to correct. But then it turns out those really, really tough spots to align are actually almost best done by eye. Wow. A computer really hasn't figured out how to effectively do that. Huh. And in some cases, people have used crowdsourcing to do it. So they've put these really complicated chunks of DNA online, and then people can go on like a little game mm -hmm. and sort of move the bases around and kind of come up with the best explanation for how they should be aligned to each other. Like citizen science projects. and Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So I looked into this and there's a game called Philo, P-H-Y-L-O. It's put out by the McGill Center for Bioinformatics. And it kind of resembles a linear, like brightly colored Tetris with blocks that you try to slide around until they match each other. Each block represents nucleotide sequences of different phylogenetic taxa. So I sucked at first, but I didn't care because it features like jazzy piano background music, which is hella sweet. And then you can also select which disease you'd like to help cure by matching nucleotide sequences of different phylogenetic taxa. So you can click on the menu like infectious diseases, blood diseases, heart and muscle diseases. It's really, it's quite an impressive menu. I chose brain and nervous system disease, which 
had kind of a powerful effect because as you're playing, it'll kind of hit you that maybe you're helping researchers find out more about, say, my mom's disease, multiple sclerosis. Maybe by playing this video game, I'm helping out. So I looked at a video and an earlier version of Philo used a graphic in the lower corner to represent your score. And it was silhouettes from the Road to Homo sapiens, aka the March of Progress illustration we talked about earlier. So it looks like they've since changed that, which is good because having these Cro-Magnon hotties in the corner, super distracting. Just kidding. So if you need a break from gold farming on World of Warcraft, you might want to hop over to Philo and just play a couple rounds. Full disclosure, I did eat Cheetos like yesterday, so no judgment on that life. Moving on. Dustin Growick wants to know, what are your favorite evolutionary anachronisms? He might be talking about like structures, like holdovers, evolutionary oh. holdovers that, that don't have a... Oh, okay. So he's... That don't have a, um, a use anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, the hip bones, the tiny hip bones of modern whale are a great evolutionary anachronism because they really speak to the, the, the fact that special creation... If you believe that each species is created perfect um, for its particular niche on Earth, um, why would modern whales have tiny hip bones? Mm -hmm. Unless there's something in their evolutionary past that points to the fact that they were once land animals. I've never known that. That makes me want to go look at whale skeletons now. Like, oh, whales, you don't need that. (laughs) Yeah, why are you carrying that around? it's overpacking. (laughs) So... Whales. Quick aside, I have to. Okay, we all know whales, they live in the sea. Okay, whales started in the sea and then they lived on land as freakish, hairy walking whales and then they slipped back into the sea like your drunk friend on spring break who disappears from playing cards against humanity to go sit in the hot tub and nurse a corona alone. So, whales, you're in the sea. Why do you have hip bones? You don't need them. I looked it up and whale hips may not be a hiccup of some ancestral relic. So the explanation may in fact be much more, as one National Geographic article puts it, erotic. That's right, whales be thrust in. They need those hip bones for boners and because lady whales like sweet moves, maybe. And there's a lot of competition out there. So sexual selection, whale grinding, like two tractor trailer Mack trucks made out of wet, blue leather, just slow boning it out. Gotta love love. Um, Celestia wants to know, are there any species that we can see current evolving happening in order to adapt to our modern world? Viruses. Oh. Viruses are constantly evolving to humans and the flu virus that's hitting us in one flu season is going to be, um, you know, yesterday's news next year, there's going to be a flu virus 2.0. And that's evolution that you can see over the course of generations, just a couple years even. Um, another great example is antibiotic resistance. That's another scary one. And um, sometimes people don't necessarily file that under evolution, but they should, because it's a direct result of natural selection pressures that we are placing on bacteria through um, our overuse of antibiotics. The reason we're getting these superbugs is 
because of evolution. Do you ever worry about humans' interference with evolution, particularly since you study birds? Do you ever worry like, ugh, we're cutting down so many trees, what are we doing to the birds? Or do you feel like, well, evolution is evolution and that's another thing to adapt to? I guess I like to see evolution kind of proceeding through its its natural course, sort of unfettered to the extent possible by mm-hmm. humans. But that's not to say, you know, we live here in Los Angeles and... Um, You can't turn a blind eye to the fact that we've got a big city here and it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to be studying urban wildlife, you're going to be studying evolution altered by humans. You know, I'm not against that either. I think that there's a lot of interesting things that we can study about evolution in human altered landscapes. It's a good attitude to have that you're not because part of me. I, as an, if I were an evolutionary biologist, would spend some time under the couch crying about how we've messed up everything, and so right, you've got a better and, attitude than I do. Well, I mean, and, and it's probably because I've gone through all the stages, right? I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I've I've been there where I've learned about all the amazing biodiversity on the Hawaiian islands that that we've lost by introducing mosquitoes and all kinds of other things, and so I, I've kind of gone through the the despair. And, the stages um, of grief. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Listen to the Thanatology episode. And you've That's right. Through it. That's right. And at some point, you've just, um, you know, especially if you're you're teaching the next generation, you've just, you've, you've got to be a little optimistic. Right. Oh, that's good. That's responsible of you. Um, <laughs> Pilot Stig wants to know, what do you say when some ass face rants, evolution is just a theory? Well, yeah, evolution is just a theory. Well, you'd like to think that you approach that person um, by telling them and sort of informing them what a theory is in science. You know, it's a, an idea that's backed up by a lot of facts. Burn. Um, Sick burn. Right. Just a reminder that the scientific method does not place theory in the bumbling beginnings of an experiment. Rather, theory is the product of a tested hypothesis. So it goes roughly, you got a question, you come up with a hypothesis, experiment, analysis, finally, you come to the theory or a conclusion. So you can think of it like Queen Hildegard eats apple turnovers, question, hypothesis, experiment, analysis, theory. Something or you something filthier if you want. I don't know. I'm just trying to help you guys. Just trying to help. But yes, the theory of evolution isn't just a harebrained theory. Honestly, I've never encountered that like face to face. Someone telling me evolution is just a theory. Oh, that's good. Um, I've encountered other misconceptions of evolution, like the if we evolve from apes, why are there still apes? Or if we evolve from monkeys, why are there still monkeys? And actually, in that case, I've found. Um, you know, that kind of a question, I think, speaks more to, to people's just, um, you know, haven't been exposed to ideas. Um, I, I've gotten that question earnestly from people. And I found that if you just sit down, you know, with a cocktail napkin and you sketch it out for them and you say, look, um, evolution is not linear. Uh, it proceeds through branching and we're related through ancestors. Um, I found that that has changed some minds. And some of my students have actually come back to tell me that um, they found that that changed minds too. Someone who's coming at you with evolution is just a theory. Um, you know, I found that those people are usually just kind of more entrenched in 
in ideologies and unlikely to change their minds. So they're trolls, kind of, I imagine. I think it's a little trolly. Don't don't feed the trolls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is my own theory. Tell me what you think about this. Okay. When I think about cars, I always get kind of caught up on the taxonomy of them because I do feel like like make and model is very genus and species. Right. And then over years, as the same species can maybe evolve and maybe they all have certain common ancestors. Maybe there's like an evolution, like divergent evolution. Is it, do you think that we created our automotive system with kind of headlights in the front, engine in the front, exhaust in the back, four wheels, quadruped to model animals at all? Or is that, does it just sound like I smoke too much weed, which I don't? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I think what it, what it sounds like and, and what I think you've clued into there is the fact that in a lot of, um, human created structures, we can see sort of, um, a history of how they've been designed and so, you know, evolution is not something that's just confined to the biological world. People use evolutionary theories to study language because mm. there's all sorts of quirky ways that languages evolve through some of the same processes of selection and random ways like drift. And we can reconstruct histories of how the things we see now are related to one another. You can do the same thing with shoes, with cars, with candy bars. And, um, what it's saying is not so much, um, about whether there's a designer behind it as there is with a car right. or the lack of a designer in the case of the biological world. Mm -hmm. What it's saying is things usually evolve through a history and through having ancestors. And anytime something goes through time like that, um, it sort of leaves a record of evidence of who shares a more recent common ancestor. And so you can see that in cars. You can see that in shoes. It's just in that case, humans are the designer. Mm -hmm. um, but need is ultimately the designer, right? I mean, it, or it's based on, on how well it adapts to the environment. Like, I feel like Hummers kind of went extinct because the environment <laughs> no longer had like cheap gas or that kind of ostentatious <laughs> right. displays of wealth. Um, but so do you think about that ever about how things kind of work themselves out based on what resources are available? Yeah. And, and you know, this kind of gets into to theories that sort of um, compare the, the marketplace uh, to evolutionary ideas. And I think there's something to be said for that. And, you know, sometimes that's called evonomics. You know, there's branches oh. of it, economics that sort of focus on evolutionary ideas. I'm not an expert on those. <laughs> but I think there is some credence to the idea that, um, you know, products sometimes, you know, they're selected for or against. And the, sometimes the ones that don't get selected die out. Now, sometimes the ones that are terrible products continued to be perpetuated on That's us, right? That's a very right? good point. <laughs> I tried to look into this further, and I found a website called Evenomics, which touts itself as the next evolution of economics. And I can't quite vouch for it because I clicked around, and I found an article titled, 
is there anything that working less doesn't solve? But um, I only read the first few paragraphs because I had to get back to work. Because whale sex facts don't research themselves. Speaking of work. Now, what is your least favorite thing about your job or a time in the field that was awful or something that you just is like, maybe not the highlight? And then I'll ask you your favorite. We'll end on a good note. Even the worst field experience is always better than answering emails. <laughs> You're like, and, and I'm sorry for those people. You know, I will get to your email sometime soon. I promise. <laughs> um, you know, the fact is, and this goes for a lot of jobs, but I think it's especially true of field biologists. We got into this job because we, we love to study animals in nature. And I still get a lot of wonderful opportunities to do that. Don't get me wrong. But they never tell you that you end up spending, you know, a good 30% of your time sitting at your desk answering emails or <laughs> filling out forms. And so, yeah, right. those are the worst aspects of my job. Not that I don't enjoy communicating with people, but boy, I'd rather be, you know, talking over a beer than um, answering in an email. Right. Or uh, having a stomach parasite in a jungle preferable to email. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what has been your favorite moment, say, out in the field on an expedition? Like, have you ever had a moment where it's just like, <gasps> The moments when you can take people out to an incredible field site, people who are either just getting excited about science and biology or birds and you can take them to a place that you've been to that's just way out there and is just incredible. Um, those are the moments I live for. So we got a chance to do that recently when we went up into the mountains of northern Baja. There's a mountain range called the Sierra San Pedro Martir. And it has basically been untouched by human habitation anyways in modern times. Um, there's still cattle that they run up there, but, um, nobody really lives up there and you almost don't see any place like that in the United States. So this is a place people don't really realize this, but there's, um, a huge number of California condors up there. And so we had the opportunity to go up there and just, um, taking some of the expedition members and a student from Occidental college and giving them the opportunity to see this place and see these condors up close. I mean, it was it's spectacular. Oh, super quick. Condor is a type of vulture, and it's inky, black, and huge, and it was on the brink of death, but is being bred in captivity and released, and it eats dead things, and it, it, it doesn't have a song. It just grunts sometimes. And since I was in an ornithology lab, I had one more very important scientific question from someone who happens to be having a birthday this week. My friend Daylin Rodriguez has a question about condors. She wants to know, are they the most goth of all the birds? <laughs> um, I don't know, because I think, <laughs> I mean, they're, they're pretty goth. I mean, with that, with the shaved head. Yeah. <laughs> sort of the, you know, and especially a lot of vultures kind of have the, the grays and, 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 the, and the black hues to their feathers. Right. But, I mean, does it get more goth than a vampire finch? I suppose not. <gasps> and that's one of the Darwin's finches, their main food source. They fly and they, they peck the backs of these, these poor um, boobies. The birds call them boobies. 
it's until they draw blood and then they they eat the blood so i don't know yeah condors are goth but hard to compete with the vampire finch the only way to do it is have a dance off someone's got to play Bauhaus they've got to have a dance off all right well you have a new goal in terms of evolutionary biology (laughs) thank you for entertaining these questions absolutely to learn more about John McCormick's work you can follow on Instagram at mlzbirds which is the account for the Moore Lab of Zoology at Occidental College you can follow me at Allie Ward with one L on Instagram or Twitter and at ologies on Instagram also on Twitter. And to rock a sweet Ologies shirt or a pin or a canvas tote, you can head to ologiesmerch.com. And thank you, Bonnie Dutch and Shannon Feltis for all of your help with that. Um, Thanks as always to Stephen Ray Morris for piecing this together from an insanely highlighted transcript. And thank you, Aaron Talbert and Hannah Lippo for adminning the Ologies podcast Facebook group, which is full of a bunch of really high quality, awesome people. Special thanks this week to Ologite Alex Anderson and any listeners who weighed in on gender and identity matters following last week's gynecology episode. I learned so much and I loved hearing what you all had to say and what your experiences were. Alex was super cool and we jumped on the phone and chatted about it for a while. Um, And I included a new intro at the very tippy top of that episode in case you want to go back and listen. You might learn some more stuff. And thanks especially to all patrons who fund the podcast so I can pay Steven and buy equipment and pay for hosting and buy memory cards and batteries and stupid stuff that's also fun. Um, You can join the Patreon party at patreon.com slash ologies. And that also lets you know what episodes are coming up so you can submit questions to the ologists. And I try to ask them all. I sometimes don't get through all of them. Just keep asking. Um, The theme music was written and performed by Nick Thorburn of the Van Islands. And there are always more links about the episode up at alleyward.com slash ologies. So if you want more research, just head there. And as always, you guys, I tell a secret at the end of the episode as a thanks for sticking through the credits. And today's secret, it's another snack secret. Um, I was going through my laundry and at the bottom of my laundry, I found a purse I haven't used in a while. And I looked in it. There was one piece of like a chocolate coin, like Hanukkah gelt, in my purse. And I was like, oh, sweet. And there was some lint on some of it, but I peeled that off and I ate it. I ate it. So what? It was in there. People have eaten a lot worse things. And I thought, man, it's April now. That had to be from Hanukkah. That must have been in December. And then I... I was like, oh, well. But then I realized, y'all, it was just from February when I went up to Portland. I just remembered that I got a chocolate cover coin up there from the dinner with Cole and Perry and Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch. It was still in my purse. And I was really proud of myself that the chocolate that I ate was only a month and a half old instead of being three or four months old. But sometimes you find chocolate in your apartment. You got to eat it. So what? Still alive, guys. Still alive, not going anywhere quite yet. Anyway, um, bye bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, olfactology, nephology, seriology, selenology.
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.